Jesus brings his ministry masterfully to its culmination, exposing the hypocrisy and injustice of the earthly authorities to which he'd been subject, taking his place as God alongside his Father at the moment of his crucifixion. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome back to Gospel Doctrine, and uh, welcome, of course, to me, because I have been away for a long time. I spent 16 days rafting the Colorado River through the entire length of the Grand Canyon, and was therefore away from all connectivity and electronic devices for some time. Uh, and it's a long, longest camping trip of my life, but uh, it's a very, very hard river rafting permit to get, so I thought I'd better take the opportunity. Anyway, I've missed... Uh, talking about the scriptures with all of you, so I'm glad to be back. This week, uh, oh, we have a couple of questions. Well, not really questions, but some comments that I wanted to read and honor the people sending these. One is from a listener in Macau. Her name is Fatima, and she's uh, she's grateful that the, the podcast for her feels like... Uh, reliving her experience in institute and college. And so I'm grateful you're listening, Fatima. And I, I do speak Portuguese, which at one time was the official language of Macau. So I don't know if you do, but uh, anyway, welcome to the podcast. So glad you're listening. Uh, another is from Terry in Jacksonville, Florida. She says, I just want you to know that as I am in primary during the second hour each Sunday, I consider you to be my Sunday school teacher. Thank you for giving me something that at this time I can get nowhere else. Terry, that is exactly why we're doing what we're doing. I hope that people can, um, not only not only if you miss Sunday school, but just if your Sunday school doesn't go into the depth that you would like. And honestly, uh, with only 50 minutes for Sunday school, and sometimes it doesn't start right on time, and sometimes your, your teacher just is new or doesn't have the same interest in going into the cultural or linguistic or literary uh, aspects of the scriptures, you you just don't get this stuff in church, and that is by intent, right? The church leaders have said this is meant to be home centered. So, th- I'm I'm so glad to be able to uh, facilitate your home centered scripture study in in whatever way that I can, and and I hope many of you have that same experience. Thank you so much for your kind emails. To- today we are talking about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the scriptures listed on this lesson. This is lesson number 24. Are Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19. Uh, and some different, mostly it's the same account, but some different details are included by, by each gospel. Um, so let's just, I'm, I'm not really going to go through the scriptures line by line. Let's go through the the outline of the story. As you remember, last week we talked about the atonement, and then following Christ's experience in the Garden of Gethsemane, he had a tr- he had a trial before the Sanhedrin, which is this council of elders, Jewish elders. Now, what was we talked a little bit about some of the irregularities of that trial. What was strange about it was uh, that they didn't follow their own laws in how to try somebody in a capital case. Uh, most notably, there wasn't a quorum. So there wasn't enough of these members of the Sanhedrin. It was 
by tradition, a, a council of around 70 Jewish elders, Jewish men. And some, some scholars think that it was only the Sadducees that were president, pre, no, well, that were not president, but uh, that were present during this trial. If you remember, we talked a, couple, a few weeks ago about how thoroughly Jesus had shut down the, the Sadducees in, in the debates and the questions that they brought before him. So the Sadducees don't believe in any books of the Bible, uh, and I shouldn't say don't believe, there are no Sadducees today, but they didn't believe in any of the books of the Bible other than the five books of Moses, and Jesus showed them using the book of Exodus exactly how obvious it was that all of their doctrine was false. And Jesus obviously accepted the, the Hebrew scriptures, if not exactly as we know them, in large part as we know them, because he quoted from them many times, things outside of the five books of Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, many of the prophets Jesus quoted, and he was very fond of quoting them, and especially the book of Daniel. So uh, Jesus was hated by the Sanhedrin, or by the those members of the Sanhedrin that were Sadducees, and some scholars think that it was only the Sadducees. This was a, a council that was made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees. So some scholars think it was only the Sadducees that showed up for Jesus' trial. And this is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, why it would have been illegal. Uh, they And just as a quick review, they, they should have been fasting for a day. They, uh, they cannot find unani- unanimously that somebody deserves death. There should be some doubt that somebody deserves death. Uh, those and other reasons make this a, a uh, oh, and the, there should have been the testimony of two witnesses and they all have to agree. And they couldn't meet any of those criteria. Instead, what they relied on was Jesus's own statements in front of them. And they can't pressure someone to make those statements, which they did by both physical force and threats of violence and uh, other threats. And none of those things were legal. So they, having found Jesus guilty of a capital crime illegally, they then send him to Pilate. And that's where this lesson for this week begins. So the interesting thing to note is that they found him guilty of, they were they were trying him for blasphemy and for threatening the temple. One of the, one of the crimes, one of the accusations they made against him. And there, there are different accounts of this trial, obviously. And so um, different charges are highlighted in each gospel. But one of the charges they made against him was that he had threatened to destroy the temple. Now, obviously, we remember that Jesus said, if, he, he never threatened to destroy the temple. He said, if you destroy this temple, and he's standing near the temple in Jerusalem, then I will rebuild it in three days. So number one, even if he had threatened the temple, he had also threatened to rebuild it. And obviously, he didn't threaten the temple, but... What was the harm if he's going to build it again in three days? Secondly, John, as John points out, his disciples realized after he was dead, he was talking about the temple of his body. There was no way they could have known that at the time. Uh, but so Jesus was certainly innocent of that charge, and they couldn't get the, the witnesses to agree. They also charged him, it, by the way, it wasn't blasphemy to claim to be the Messiah. There had been several people who, who either made this claim or had this claim made about them in Jewish history, and they weren't charged in this way. Um, they all met polit- different political difficulties as Jesus is meeting for claiming to be the Messiah. 
In this specific case, the Jewish leaders are fearful of the Roman reaction to him placing himself as this sort of political figure as they expected the Messiah to be. But they do believe that Jesus has made himself equal with God as either God himself or as the Son of God, depending on where you read it. And this was the charge that they felt was was, uh, confirmed by Jesus in some of the statements that he made. And they... When they found him guilty, then they, uh, actually before they be even began the trial, they, they put a hood over him and they would hit him through the hood or a blindfold. And then they would say, if you're a prophet, prophesy and tell me who has struck you. They pulled on his beard. They spit in his face. And all of these actions were fulfillments of the prophecy made by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 50, when he wrote, this is Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. Uh, he gave, well, this, let's see, let's read it in the King James Version. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. And this is uh, almost word for word fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. Now, many times in Isaiah, when Isaiah talks about the sufferings of the of the servant of God, of, of Jehovah, Israel, the Israelites interpret that servant as being them, their people as a whole. And so, therefore, this is seen symbolically. They were not afraid to be mistreated by the nations around them as a, as a people. And both are true. It's, that's the interesting part, as we'll discuss next week. Um, I have a special episode that I'm going to do next week, but um, the, one of the points that I'm going to make is that it was very obvious to the writers of the Gospels that Jesus represented Israel in a, in a symbolic way, that his whole life paralleled the history of Israel. I point that out uh, in, my, in my lecture from last year on the six antecedents of Isaiah, how the history of Israel parallels both the life of Jesus and our own spiritual progress in through the plan of salvation, among other things, among the including the temple. So Jesus is um, fulfilling various messianic prophecies from Isaiah, uh, and then, uh, as we'll see very soon, he's going to fulfill that heartbreaking passage from Isaiah fifty-three when uh, with his stripes we're healed, we surely uh, by his sufferings we are brought to wholeness. And I'll read, I'll read that passage as we get there. But the Jewish Sanhedrin then sends Jesus to, to be put on trial before Pilate. And so the interesting thing now is that the charge has changed. So first of all, the, the entire trial was illegal. Now there is a word for putting someone to death through an illegal trial. And it's not anything special. It's a word everyone knows. That word is murder. It's not more legal just because it's done by the government or by the state or by the authorities. The fact that the trial was illegal and that the consequence was death makes it murder that they sent Jesus to be executed. Now, 
and, and they knew that it was murder, and there's proof in the scriptures, and I'll show you what that is. But I'm going to make a few points about this. And there are many, many people, as Jesus, everybody, in fact, who interacts with Jesus as he moves through the day of his crucifixion, they're all guilty of murdering Jesus. And they're all capable of exercising justice. And they all have, they all have what should have been strictures in place that should have prevented this, and they were all willing to ignore them in order to kill Jesus. And we'll talk about what their reasons were and why they and how they did it. So we just talked about the Sanhedrin. That's the first group. Jesus arrives in front of Pilate, and Pilate has some questions for Jesus. And uh, Jesus answers Pilate the way he answers everyone, very minimally. Uh, in some cases, Jesus stands in front of the people questioning him, says not a word. In front of Pilate says, okay, so the charge now is instead of being you're a blasphemer and you threaten the temple, the charge now is you're calling yourself the king of the Jews. So Pilate says, art thou the king of the Jews? Now Jesus' response is not to say, yes, I am. Uh, he says, thou hast said. But it's a, it's a strange, not strange, it's, it's not an exact confirmation. Yes, I'm the king of the Jews. Basically what Jesus is saying is, he also says, my kingdom is not of this world. So he's saying, yeah, but not in the way I am a king of the Jews, but not in the way that you mean it. He's, what, uh, to me, it feels like a merciful exchange between Jesus and Pilate. Now, Pilate is anything but a good man. Uh, Pilate is an evil man. He, it, there are so many historical examples of Pilate treating the Jews among... This wasn't his first assignment, and he was always uh, sort of a petty, ambitious, politi- political figure, but without any huge, great connection. So he, he was entrusted with a very troublesome province, but also a backwater province. The Romans weren't too concerned with Palestine, as it came to be called. Uh, incidentally, the, Jew, the, the Romans called it Palestine to mock the Jews because it was known as Judea and Samaria. And the, uh, the Romans then, to, to say, Jews, there are no more Jews left in Judea and Samaria, they began calling it Palestine, which was uh, derived from the word for Philistines, the Jews' historical enemies. Uh, in any case, the to send pa- Pilate to be prefect or governor over Judea and Samaria was a very unsavory assignment. He he had to have hated his life there, and he was waiting for the day when Caesar would recognize that he'd performed well there and he could be brought back to Rome. Now, unfortunately, he had had to put down, violently put down, and Jesus makes reference of this uh, when he was still in Galilee. He'd had to violently put down some insurrections and riots and demonstrations, and he was cruel enough to kill people for the crime of complaining when he governed them with an iron fist. Now, some of his decisions had to do with their religious observances. Most of them were economic. And so one of the things that the Romans did, Jews put a huge, huge significance on their land. And the Romans would tax the Jews to such an extent that they had to give up their land. And so then there would be a Roman uh, landlord who would come in and buy the land so the Jews could pay the taxes and then 
he had taken away their ancestral homeland, their ancestral place of dwelling. And then they were slaves almost almost in every sense of the word, or um, peasant serfs on their own land, what had previously been their own land. This was the state of many Jews, especially in places like Galilee. And, th- and this is why when Jesus uses parables like the parable of the, the evil servants in the vineyard, they can all relate to it because there's a, there's a man who lives far away, but he wants his servants to give him the fruit of his vineyard. And so at first, his listeners might have uh, identified with those servants who were wicked, who were willing to kill even the son of the owner of the vineyard and not send him the fruit, right? But then uh, Jesus makes it clear that these these men are uh, more wicked than even the Jews would have wanted to be. In any case, Pilate was hated for this reason. He was not popular among the Jews. And so his, think I'm trying to put you into his mindset, which was, I want uh, Caesar to notice me. In order for Caesar to think that I am basically reducing his headaches from this area, I don't want him to have any complaints. The The Romans wanted to conquer land, and then after that, they wanted peace. The way they would do it is they would they would usually allow people as much uh, self government as as was possible while extracting the maximum amount of wealth to finance their wars of further expansion. So they wanted to tax the Jews. They wanted pretty much the Jews to just pay, and then they wanted to be able to leave the Jews alone. But the Jews were suffering horribly, and so. Caesar didn't want to hear about Judea and Samaria. He had no desire to trouble himself with Jerusalem, and Pilate is trying to keep everything quiet. And then here comes along Jesus, and the Jewish leaders are saying he's guilty of our laws, and Pilate is saying, well, I don't care, and he also made himself a king. Okay, so Pilate now has to try Jesus. He, he brings him in front of him, and this is, this is what a trial would have looked like for someone in Jesus' station, and perhaps even... It's, it's a trial that is even, some scholars have has suggested that is a trial that is deserved by someone who is even above Jesus' station. So Pilate does him the uh, extraordinary honor of a personal trial in front of him and finds no fault with him, right? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, and Pilate believes him. He can't find any fault with him. He says it over and over again. In the book of Luke, we have the only account of another uh, encounter that Jesus has, where Pilate sends... Now, c- keep in mind, this this trial before the Sanhedrin has happened overnight. Jesus has not slept. He went straight from the Last Supper to the Garden of Gethsemane, arrested as a, a late-night uh, trial in front of the Sanhedrin, and then is taken in the early wee hours of the morning before Pilate. Now, Pilate, in the book of Luke, sends him to Herod Antipas, Herod Antipas is one of the sons of Herod the Great, whose current authority is over the area of Galilee. And hearing that Herod Antipas is in town, he's in his Jerusalem palace for Passover, presumably, and that Jesus is one of his subjects, Pilate thinks, okay, I'm going to try to escape this situation because I I don't want to execute someone who didn't do anything. I don't know what sort of political, I don't imagine that he scrupled to murder someone because Pilate had killed many people, but he doesn't know what sort of 
hornet's nest he might be stepping in by killing Jesus. And so he sends Jesus to Herod to try to get somebody else to take responsibility for him. Now here Jesus is before Herod Antipas. If you recall, this is the man who, while he was in his Galilean palace, imprisoned and then murdered John the Baptist. So this is somebody who's already guilty of the same kind of murder, murder by the authority, murder by an unrighteous execution. And there are also studies that talk about, we won't go into it right now, but how the execution of John the Baptist was also carried out unlawfully by Herod Antipas. Jesus says not a single word during this entire exchange. And uh, there are a couple of reasons that I can think of for that. One was he uh, had such obviously harsh feelings towards Herod Antipas, but Jesus is all forgiving and all loving, right? So another explanation is that he knows that Herod can't do anything to release him. He knows that Herod has already, he's already ripe in his iniquity. He's not going to repent at all. And therefore, by not saying anything, he prevents Herod from being further condemned. Depending on how you want to interpret this encounter, Jesus says nothing at all. Herod Antipas then mocks Jesus, and they put a because Jesus has this reputation of being someone who's claimed to be a Messiah. And Herod, it says elsewhere in the scriptures that he'd, he'd long wanted to meet Jesus. He had been curious about him for a long time. He'd heard about him because he was his ruler over the area where Jesus had his ministry, but he never met him personally. I imagine be, probably because Jesus had no desire to come into contact with him. But he puts this royal robe on him in mockery, like you've called yourself a king. Now look at you. Let's put a royal robe on you. There are a number of unwitting actions and statements made by the people who interact with Jesus that are actually uh, 100% true and appropriate. And in this case, this royal robe is one of those. It was meant as mockery, but in fact, it's not. In fact, it's totally appropriate for Jesus to have uh, a royal kingly robe put upon him. And it was in fulfillment of prophecy that later on the soldiers would cast lots for his garments. They gambled for his clothing because it was so fine. This is where he obtains uh, that fine robe. Nevertheless, Herod can't, he can't do anything. Jesus has not said a word and he has no reason to kill Jesus. So he sends Jesus back to Pilate. And at this point, Pilate also gets a message from his wife, and his wife says, that is a just man. He's an innocent man. Don't have anything to do with him. I've, su I've suffered much in a dream today because of him. So in other words, don't, don't murder this person, right? She knows what Pilate is capable of and uh, presumably has been aware of his previous murders. Maybe, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but... In any case, Pilate comes upon this great idea. He has a tradition of releasing a criminal around this time every year uh, unto the people. And so he comes across the idea that I can, uh, obviously, the, the crowd outside is going to be more interested in having an innocent person released than a guilty one. And so I'll give them a choice of the people that I can release, and they'll choose Jesus, and then I don't have to worry about it, and then it'll be on them. Around this time, Judas returns to the, to the Jewish leaders, and he says, 
I've betrayed, I, I, I now have innocent blood on my hands. I've betrayed innocent blood. Take these 30 pieces of silver back. And the Jewish leaders say to Judas, what is that to us? What does that have to do with us at all? Nothing. You see to it. And so uh, wanting to presumably, now we can, we're going to examine some of the motives behind what these people are doing. So we've, we talked a few weeks ago about what might have been Judas's motives for betraying Jesus, uh, which perhaps were that Jesus wasn't, he wasn't being militant enough. He, what, Judas may have known that Jesus was the Messiah, but he didn't feel like he was acting to promote his own kingdom fast enough. Or he wasn't, maybe it was about the money. As John said, he holds the bag and he wants Jesus to not give so much money to the poor. Um, and so we don't know what Judas's motives were, but we now we, we have another action by Judas, which is he comes back and tries to give money back. So if it was about the money, then uh, he's had a change of heart. And, and maybe it was because Judas never intended for Jesus to be killed. He thought that Jesus would be tried. They wouldn't be able to find anything against him, or maybe they would imprison him or torture him or whatever, and then let him go, and then Jesus would be radicalized. That's something that I thought of. I don't know if it has any truth to it at all. It's just an idea. Um, Or perhaps he really did realize that he'd been so stupid and that Jesus was uh, the one who was right. And he, and he, rather than paying attention to what he expected, he should pay attention to the things that Jesus taught. And he could see that Jesus was acting in the very way that he had taught from the beginning. So then his change of heart may have come upon him. In any case, he takes the money. He doesn't want it anymore. He knows it's blood money and he throws it in the temple and the Jewish leaders go to the temple and they see this money and they say, we can't spend this money. This is blood money. Judas, meanwhile, goes and commits suicide, and he hangs himself out of guilt for what he's done. That's that's the the implication. The Jewish leaders, now this is the proof, because they call the money that Judas got for betraying Jesus, they call it blood money. Now, if there had been nothing wrong with what they were doing with Jesus, then they would not have been reluctant to take this money back. They would have said, no, this was a bounty that we paid to uh, apprehend a criminal who was somebody we knew was guilty, and therefore uh, there's nothing wrong with the money. The money has not been tainted, tainted in any sense. But instead they call it blood money, and they, they say that it's unlawful for it to go into the temple. And so then they buy what they buy. what they Now, now it's interesting uh, Matthew actually makes quite a point of talking about what happens with the money. They buy this potter's field and they use it for burying foreigners, right? So what happens to people who die in Jerusalem when they travel there? They have to be buried somewhere. And if there is a public burial ground, then there's somewhere for them to go. In other words, they, they do a good deed with the money. They try to cleanse the money by doing some good with it. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. The okay, so back to Jesus now. Jesus, that's the end of the story of the Jewish leaders and the uh, and Judas. And Jesus now is in front of Pilate, and Pilate takes him in front of the angry mob. Now, by this time, it's maybe seven between seven and eight in the morning, and in our reckoning, our modern clock. And there's a mob outside, and we don't know exactly where Pilate was. 
scholars differ on this because Pilate might have been in the west part of Jerusalem, across town from the temple, um, in his in his own palace, or he might have been in the Antonia Fortress, which is right neighboring the temple, just uh, just a little bit north of the temple, attached to the, the wall of the Temple Mount. Not that it matters, but that uh, Jesus would have been, it, it tells us a little bit about how far Jesus would have traveled in between these two places. It gives us a little feeling for what his morning looked like as he was shuffled from trial to trial and then from, to his execution. Um, if he was in the Antonia Fortress, then Jesus would have passed very close to the, the Catholic view of, the, of Golgotha, of Calvary, in between the, the home of Caiaphas on Mount Zion, which is a little bit to the west and to the south, and then back to the north of the Temple Mount, he would have passed very near to Golgotha on, on his way there and seen where he was going to die. Um, and if he didn't, if, if Pilate was in his own palace, then there, those two locations, Caiaphas's palace and Pilate's palace, would have been very close together. So a couple of differing views there. So Pilate wants to give a choice to the mob, but my first question is, what kind of mob assembles at 7 a.m., right? Uh, There are times when this has actually been taught uh, in my presence, and um, I've heard it in a few places, that the mob had, in one one week, they had uh, proclaimed Jesus their Messiah, and the next week, here they are calling for his death. Now, this this should be obvious that this isn't the case, first of all, by the fact that it's 7 a.m. What kind of mob assembles at 7 a.m., right? The Jewish leaders have been out all night beating the bushes, gathering whatever people they can gather who they know will be loyal to them, and maybe people over whom they have some leverage. So come, get out of bed, get yourself over to either the fortress or to Pilate's palace, and we need you to proclaim for the death of Jesus, for the crucifixion of Jesus. Crucifixion was a horrible uh, sentence. There There were other methods of execution. It was reserved for those who were guilty of one crime, which was the crime of trying to overthrow the power of Rome. So sedition. So this, they send Jesus to Pilate, accuse him of sedition, and they get this mob to come out and say, crucify him. Now, crucifixion, the Jewish people in Jerusalem would have hated crucifixion. Uh, it, it seems a fair guess to say that almost all of them would have had somebody close to them either threatened with or who had suffered crucifixion because so many people had been had chafed at Roman rule and demonstrated against it or in some other way protested it and then been crucified. And they thought... It was a horrible misuse of Roman power. And so then for, the, for them to assemble in this way and to say, what should we do with Jesus? So G- Pilate presents Jesus and another man in front of them. For them to say, crucify him, shows how willing they were to, it shows the corruption of the mob, right? We, you have to wonder about what their motive was. Why were they doing this? What, what had Caiaphas and Annas, the the high priest and the leader of the Sanhedrin, what had they, what power had they exercised? What influence had they brought to bear in order to get this mob 
to call for such a cruel fate, one which they would have been so naturally opposed to. Uh, we can only guess. But it, it seems fairly clear that it would have been a corrupt purpose that the mob had. Now, who did Pilate present uh, as, a, as an alternative to releasing Jesus? He, he presents this man named Barabbas. Now, in some, it may, it may surprise you to learn, hopefully not if you've been listening carefully the whole time, but uh, it, it may surprise you to learn that the, the version of the New Testament we have is actually controversial. There are, there are just a few manuscripts from Old Testament times of the Hebrew Scriptures, and therefore um, we, we can sort of agree about what the text, the original text of the Old Testament is, and then scholars sort of quibble about how that text should be translated. Well, in the case of the New Testament, there are, there are something like 1,500 different manuscripts that record these scriptures, and therefore some of them include little details that others don't. So you may have heard that Barabbas, this man that Pilate is about to release to the mob, is also named Jesus, and some of the manuscripts have this name. Now, it wouldn't have been an uncommon name, so the name Jesus was the name Joshua or Yeshua. It's an Old Testament name. We talked about what it means. We won't go into it here. But that is Barabbas' first name. Jesus Barabbas was his name. And Barabbas or Bar-Abbas or, uh, is, is Aramaic. Bar is, is equivalent to the Hebrew Ben, which is son of. And Abba is father. So Barabbas, Jesus, the son of the father. What crime was he guilty of? Matthew doesn't tell us. We have to learn in Mark or Luke that Barabbas was a murderer and somebody guilty of sedition. So the very crime that Jesus is being accused of, Barabbas is guilty of. And the very things that the those who hated the Romans the most would have wanted in Jesus, they had in Barabbas. So they had somebody who was willing to fight to the point of violence against Roman rule. And Barabbas presumably had been sentenced to crucifixion as well. Had Jesus been released at this point, it would have been Barabbas in the center of, the, of those three crucified people on Golgotha on uh, Good Friday. Instead, the mob has the choice. And, and uh, Pilate thinking that, okay, here's an innocent man on the one hand who... Uh, we can only imagine that Pilate was very aware of Jesus, who only a week ago had been proclaimed and and welcomed by adoring mobs everywhere he went for so long as a wonderful teacher and as uh, a loving person, right? Who knows what Pilate knew about Jesus, but some of this would have come to his ears. He would have thought that the mob would want Jesus released rather than this this terrible criminal. So this mob is a corrupt mob. So we've we've now witnessed the interactions of four people, Jude or four groups of people, Judas, the Sanhedrin, Pilate, and the mob. They're all that if there's one phrase that I think applies to the interactions of people with Jesus in this lesson, it would be what's called, what's known in, in Hebrew doctrine as blood guilt. 
And some of the ideas that I'm, I'm talking about today, they come from a podcast I've mentioned a few times, uh, the Exploring My Strange Bible, among other places and among my own thoughts as I was coming down the river. Um, but, uh, and that, and that pop- podcast is now finished. There's no new content. It was a, a pastor who'd had several years of sermons. And in the last couple of months, uh, he, he finally put up the, the end of his sermons. He ended with uh, finishing the book of Matthew. So if you've been enjoying that podcast, as I have, um, there won't be anything new coming out, unfortunately, at least for a while. Um, but the, so he makes the point, Tim Mackey, the, the person in this, uh, who does this podcast, he makes the point that blood guilt is a, is an idea that is explored in many places, not just in this, this story of the crucifixion, but it begins with Cain and Abel and Cain and Abel, uh, Cain kills Abel. And as we know in the, in the Pearl of Great Price, Cain kills Abel in order to get gain, to have access to all of his brother's wealth. And when, uh, in the book of Genesis, when the Lord says to Cain, you're going to have this penalty now because you've killed your brother, Cain says, my guilt is more than I can bear. And this idea is, we see this all over the place. For example, in, uh, in Shakespeare, in Macbeth, the... Lord and Lady Macbeth, they kill one of their rivals for the for the throne, Duncan. And at the end, towards the end of Macbeth, it's drive the guilt over this murder is driving Lady Macbeth crazy, and she actually has nightmares that that his blood is on her hands. And she can never be free of it. She even says that who would because we're now rulers, who would now hold us to account for this murder? No one. And yet there's so much blood. And so blood guilt is a real thing. The, the, the blood of Abel cried out from the ground to God against Cain. And uh, there's just something about murder that is worse than, than anything else that we can do. And the Jewish leaders knew that they'd committed murder because they didn't want to take Judas's money. Judas knew he'd been part of a murder because... He didn't want the money. He wanted to return it, and he killed himself over it. And here's Pilate. He knows that he's committing murder because he says, I can find no fault in this man. I want to release him. He hasn't done anything wrong. He has a couple of reasons, then, to proceed with what he doesn't want to do, in spite of his wife's objections and his own conscience. The, the mob is saying, first of all, they say, crucify him. And he says, okay, but it's not going to be on me, right? The responsibility for this murder is not going to be on me. And they say, on, the mob says, on our heads and on the heads of our children, let it be. It's, it's a little unclear about what they meant by that, right? That's actually a controversial phrase because... Uh, Christians have interpreted this as the entire Jewish race is guilty of killing Jesus. And, and the, the literal fulfillment of this curse, you might say, came in 70, between 66 and 70 AD when Titus, who became emperor, 
uh, conquered the Holy Land and, and laid waste to it, right? Upon our heads and the heads of our children. Forty years later, this entire land would be destroyed. So Pilate then performs this symbolic act. He, he wanted everyone to know that he didn't wasn't making this decision, they were making it. And so he washes his hands in front of them as if to say, I am not responsible for your choice. Okay, so now let's talk about what, what each of these choices made by these different people that interact with Jesus, what they mean. So Judas, he's committed a, a horrible act. He goes straight into depression. I'm a terrible person. I can, there is not enough grace in the world to ever bring me back into any sort of connection with God. And therefore, uh, I want to end my life. I want to take my life. I want to kill myself. The Sanhedrin, they take the money, this blood money, and they buy a potter's field with it. They try to wipe out what they have done through good deeds. They think, well, the good of what of what we have done in committing this evil act outweighs the sin we've committed, right? As as uh, as another unwitting prophecy was, it's better for one man to die that the entire nation could live. So we're willing to commit a murder in order to bring to pass our good aims, and their their motives were. To keep the Romans, to keep Jesus from inciting the mob so that the Romans would have to respond violently. Uh, Pilate, his, his motivation, right? As, as he's about to release Jesus, we see only in one place, the book of John, uh, the Jewish leaders are even willing to threaten Pilate with talk of going to Caesar. And uh, this is John, I can't remember the exact verse. Let's see, it was uh, John chapter 19, verse 12. And so Pilate is realizing that Jesus is innocent, and he's afraid. He, it even says uh, when in verse 8 of John 19, when Pilate heard that saying, in other words, um, he tries to release Jesus, he goes to the Jewish leaders, he's like, I can't find any fault in him. And then they finally reveal, okay, well, we sent you to him because by our law he should die. He made himself the son of God. And then Pilate says, in verse 8, it says he was very afraid. He realizes he's fulfilling their will and killing somebody for, for their stupid, as he would have seen it, their stupid law of blasphemy when it has nothing to do with Roman law and it just doesn't have anything to do with him. So then he goes back into Jesus and he says, Jesus, where are you from? Like, give me, some, give me something I can use to release you. And Jesus doesn't answer anything. And Pilate pleads with him, you know, Aren't you going to talk to me? Don't you know I can let you go? I can, I can crucify you. And Jesus says, you couldn't have had any power over me at all if it weren't given you from above. And so Pilate, is, he is absolutely stunned by the equanimity, the composure of Jesus. And he recognizes that this person is not afraid to die. And he also knows that he's innocent. He can see it. He can see it in Jesus. And then it says in uh, John 19, verse 12, and from thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. So now all of a sudden, the Jewish leaders are super loyal subjects of Caesar, 
right? They are even so loyal that they're more loyal than the governor himself, and they're reminding him of his duty to Caesar. They're threatening him. If you let Jesus go, we're gonna Caesar will hear about this. Somebody who proclaimed himself a king, and you let him go. So now, what is Pilate's motivation, right? Pilate's motivation is that he has to protect his position. He doesn't want Caesar to hear about any sort of riot. He doesn't want Caesar to hear about the fact that he let someone go who claimed to be a king. So in order to protect all of these earthly trappings of power, he's willing to commit murder. He's willing to send a man he knows to be innocent to his death and be executed in a very, very painful way and humiliating way. The Jewish leaders, what did they want? They wanted to keep Jesus from stirring up trouble. They wanted to protect the power structure that existed in Jerusalem, including the temple, which was a huge stream of income for them. And therefore, they, and and by the way, the, the high priests at this time, when the Romans conquered it, they took over the appointment of those priests. And so they had been appointed for their ability to bow to Roman will. And so these men were chosen for their corruption you might say, from a Jewish perspective. And therefore, here they are acting that out. So they're all willing to commit murder. The mob, we, we talked about what their motivations might be. We can only guess. But by the time Pilate decrees that Jesus should die, a bunch of people have been participating in a conspiracy to commit what we know is murder. Pilate orders Jesus whipped. And one of, the, one of the reasons for this was presumably because this is a Friday, this, the Sabbath is approaching, and therefore anybody who is crucified, can't, they can't have their full two or three days that it takes for crucifixion to kill you, to die. Uh, and so by whipping him, it was hoped that the blood loss caused by having so many wounds opened up on your back, on Christ's back, would weaken him to the point where he wouldn't last into the Sabbath because no one could hang on the cross over the Sabbath. And so a very very cruel whip was used, one that would tear the flesh open when Jesus was scourged. And then the the guards, this is is the point at which uh, the guards gambled for his raiment. Um, outside of where the Antonia Fortress was in modern-day Jerusalem, there's a museum called the Eki Homo Museum, which means, Eki Homo in Greek means, behold the man. So Pilate brought Jesus out and said, behold the man who is your king. Behold your king. And the, the mob denied him, just as Peter had denied him. And buried under the one layer you know, in a, in a, in a sub Terranean layer in this museum is an old stone on which are carved some games of chance, little almost looks like a tic-tac-toe board. And it's theorized that this would have been something similar to what the the soldiers may have used to gamble for Jesus's uh, raiment. And this might have been the place in which it happened. It's still there today. You can go see it. So um, then Jesus is given a crown of thorns. And this is another example of something that was meant as mockery. But there could have been no more appropriate symbol for Jesus's coronation. 
he, as, as John took incredible pains to point out symbolically over and over again, and we hit this very hard a few weeks ago, it was in dying that Jesus ascended to his throne. And so the crown of thorns was the perfect symbol of both his death and his assumption of his royal position. Um, and we mentioned the, the spitting and the plucking out of the hair. Uh, this was a, per- a perfect fulfillment, a word-for-word fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 50. And finally, Jesus. so then Jesus makes his painful and laborious way down what is called the Via Dolorosa to the place of a skull or Golgotha and is crucified. Crucifixion is well known to include nails in the wrists. Uh, There are many ways in which it is depicted. It's not well known that the Greek word stauros for cross, which became the the cruce in in Latin and Latin languages, uh, was not actually a cross as we know it. It could have meant anything from a stake to a cross. So there are there are religions that that argue that the the cross was actually a stake and Jesus was was crucified on a single piece of wood that was vertical. Most scholars think that Jesus would have carried his cross piece and there would have been a single stake that was permanent uh, because wood was scarce in the Holy Land. And so Jesus would have carried a smaller piece of wood that would have been used to nail him. And I want to make a point about the Via Dolorosa, which is Jesus said, it was, it's, it's a well-known idea. Jesus said, whoso would be greatest among you, let him be your servant. And he was the most obvious fulfillment of that statement. Christ served everyone, and therefore he was the greatest among all of us. So in thinking about that, how many people actually served Jesus? We can think back on the scriptures and come up with a few examples, but mostly Jesus was serving others. And when he was interacting with his disciples, it wasn't them doing something for him. It was him teaching them, or sometimes he gave them tasks, but the tasks were go serve these other people, not here's a task of something that I need. Uh, A few examples leap out. The woman who anointed Christ's feet and wiped, washed his feet with her hair. That happened actually on a couple of occasions. Um... But one of the greatest examples, and we're going to talk about some wonderful examples of people serving Christ next week uh, when we discuss the resurrection, but one of the most historically acclaimed examples and one of the most dramatic examples is Simon, who may have just, he may have been a disciple before this day, but he, or he may have just been a passerby, an onlooker. But as Jesus is walking, he stumbles and he runs out of strength. And he can no longer bear the weight of this huge piece of wood that he's going to be nailed to. And so the soldiers grab this man, Simon, and and make him carry the cross of Jesus. And so I just want to contrast Simon with the four groups we've been talking about who were willing to commit murder, who were taking upon them this form of blood guilt. And I want to point out that all of us have... Obviously, we're not committing murder. We're not killing Jesus. But in a very, in a very real way, even though it's, it's indirect and it's a spiritual way, we all of us bring suffering to our Lord. And 
some of us, our reaction to this guilt, this blood guilt, is, uh, is it, it comes in a very, in a variety of manifestations, and they can be described in ways that are very similar to what happened with Jesus. So Judas, he reacts with depression and shame, right? He, he feels like he's worthless and he kills himself. The Jewish leaders, they react by trying to erase their, their misdeeds, their guilt, through good deeds. Pilate, what, what does Pilate do? He proclaims his innocence. I'm entitled to do this. And the fact that you want this means that I, it's not my responsibility. Even though the fact, that, the fact remains that Pilate could have released Jesus and it required his choice to send Jesus to his death. So Pilate was, the fact that he says he was innocent has nothing to do with his guilt or innocence. Pilate then went on to finish all of the actions required to murder Jesus and the crowd. And the crowd's presumed motivation was to embrace a rebel, to embrace someone who looked like the Messiah that they thought they wanted, uh, someone who would get them earthly results rather than following the way of heaven. So these are the four unjust ways, and there may be more, in which people interacted with their blood guilt around Jesus. Now, blood guilt was a, was a topic that would have been very familiar to a Hebrew because in, in Jewish temple rituals, the, the sacrifice, the blood of the sacrifice is, is kept and it is disposed of in very specific ways. It's either rubbed on the, the points of the altar or it's poured to the ground at the base of the altar uh, it can be carried into the holy place and rubbed on the altar of incense inside the holy place, or it can be sprinkled before the veil, or in the case of the Day of Atonement, it can be carried all the way into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant itself. And where, what happened to the blood was dependent on how many people's sins this blood was atoning for, but it was always an expiation for somebody's sin. This sacrifice had been offered to erase a sin, and then it was being put into the temple in order to make that complete. And this was how blood guilt was dealt with. In, uh, by the way, the, the idea of blood guilt uh, continues to this day, at least in the state of Utah. <laughs> this is just an interesting side, side note. Uh, in the state of Utah, it's still legal to execute someone via firing squad, and that's we're the only state in the Union. And it's because early in our history, there were people, uh, Latter-day Saints, who felt that blood guilt could be expiated by, as it says in the Old Testament, if, if uh, whoso should, should shed the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. So your blood guilt could be dealt with if your blood was shed. Now, whether that's doctrinal or not, I, I won't say, but... Uh, there are people who believed it, and therefore it found its way into Utah law. It's an interesting uh, historical anomaly, you might say. Um, but so these are the ways in which we participate in blood guilt. When we feel the guilt of what we have, the suffering that we have brought onto our Savior, that is actually the blood guilt. Uh, it's not the guilt unto, it's not the guilt of murder, right? We don't, hopefully none of you listening have committed murder, but the point isn't that... Uh, 
we have to do the worst things in order to feel this guilt. We feel the suffering of our Savior, and we feel the disconnection from Him when we sin. And the, we can choose one of these unjust ways of dealing with it, or we can choose what Simon did, which is, so when Jesus was carrying his cross, what he was doing was he was recognizing the injustice. Now, th- now remember, a cross is the ultimate statement and symbol of the injustice of man and the corruption of human governments. What Daniel 7 refers to as the beasts, remember these beasts trample, and they were later revealed to Daniel to be kings. They trample and, they, and there's none to deliver because the governments of men are the authority. There's no one that can, that can rescue you if government decrees that you're going to die. And if government decides to murder you, you will be murdered. And so Jesus is bearing this symbol. It's a, it's a murder weapon. It's a torture device. And it's a platform for mockery, all in one. And he bore it without complaint. It shows that it was not Jesus who was on trial. Jesus was bearing, at this moment, he was bearing the responsibility for the beasts that men become when they want to protect their own power. This was his final act, was to take all of the injustice of the world and take it to his death. And Simon stepped in and also shared that responsibility and said, Jesus, I will help you take the responsibility for the sins of men and the injustices that exist in the world and bring it to the place where you will bear all of it. So these are the, this is the choice that we have, right? Jesus said, Jesus invited people in both the Book of Mormon and in the New Testament. He said, if you will follow me, then, then pick up your cross. And here's a man, here's an example that we have of someone who is willing to do that. To, Simon wasn't crucified, right? Simon didn't have to perform the atonement of Jesus or die for our sins. He just helped Jesus along the way. It's, an, it's such an interesting symbol, I think. Now, let's talk a little bit about the idea of the beast. We're running out of time, and I wish I had more time, but um, in the first part of the book of Genesis, God gives dominion to man. The point of creating man was that man would rule. And that man would rule in God's image. So it's very clear that male and female, men are in God's image. And then he gives them dominion and power over all things and says rule. And the the way that men are to rule is to, he says, rule over it and subdue it, but to do it in God's image. And Jesus is talking about what the kingdom of God looks like. And that is what it means to rule in God's image. So before the fall, if, if men had ruled in the way of God's kingdom as Jesus taught it, they would have been following those commandments from God, which are, take, take this image that I've given you and rule over all things. Exercise righteous dominion, and there will be peace and prosperity and, and wonderful blessings in every, in every direction. Now, what Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7 was this vision of the beasts coming out of the sea, representing the kings of this world, and they trampled. And as it said, none can deliver. And I made reference to this because when it's the government, when it's the king, when it's the state that exercises the unjust power that leads to murder, then none can deliver. 
only only a stronger state can deliver. Uh, you remember even in the book of Daniel, there's a there's an example of a an unrighteous. Um, he's he's one of the if I'm if I'm not wrong, he's a Persian emperor. Um, no, it's the Babylonian emperor, and he's celebrating by drinking wine from the vessels that they've that they've stolen from the temple in Jerusalem, and then. Uh, some writing appears on the wall and they summon everyone and finally they bring Daniel and Daniel says, yeah, the, this night your kingdom will be taken away. And sure enough, the Persians write in that night and kill the king. And, and so his unrighteousness could only be ended by a stronger king, by a stronger conqueror. But it wasn't ended by Daniel saying, this is unrighteous, I'm going to take away your ability to drink from these vessels of the temple. They were allowed to continue in their unrighteousness. And it was only a larger beast that could trample them. So this idea of the beast finds itself finds uh, expression all over the scriptures. If from, from early on, you, you remember that when Joseph is sold into slavery and he encounters the the baker and the butler in prison and then on pharaoh's birthday the butler is brought forth and and he's killed Be- and you know who knows be- or the baker sorry and who knows whether it was because he didn't do the bread right and that was on pharaoh's birthday which brings to mind summons to our mind herod antipas who's celebrating on his birthday and who should dance before him but one of his r- close relatives and also his stepdaughter and it's obviously a, a sexually provocative dance, and therefore he gives her anything she wants. She asks for the head of John the Baptist, and so he, he illegally murders John the Baptist. And he is the authority. No one can stop him. And that's, on, that's what happens when a wicked man is in charge and it's his birthday. People die. Uh, people die when Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he doesn't understand what the dream means. He doesn't understand this vision of a, a large figure that is made of all kinds of different materials and then a stone cut out of the mountain without hands rolls down. And he threatens all of his wise men. If you can't tell me the meaning of this dream, you have to first tell me the dream and then you have to tell me what it means or you're all going to die. And then then Nebuchadnezzar sets up this this image, right? And it's not an image in the image of God. It's an image in whatever he wants it to be of. It's an image of his power, of what he thinks God should look like. And so they already, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have nothing to do with worshiping this image, and therefore they're thrown in the fiery furnace. This is what happens when you won't, the, this is a contrast between the beast and the image of God. There are two parts to our souls. We have an image of God within us that we can choose to heed. Or we have the natural man, that part of us that is a beast. And a government is ruled by one or the other. It has to be. Either God is in charge or the natural man is in charge. Either we're in a godly society or the beast is ruling and trampling and devouring and none can deliver. And uh, as I, I mentioned, I mentioned Shakespeare Shakespeare wrote a lot about this. Hamlet is also about this. Before the, before the action of the play begins, Hamlet's father has already been killed. And as the play opens, Hamlet is dealing with the death of his father. We find out later, his father's been killed by his own brother. And he killed him in order to get the kingdom. 
and to, to marry his sister-in-law, who he obviously coveted. And therefore, uh, as at one point, Claudius, this, this man who's committed the murder, is praying, and he's saying, uh, what can I do to be forgiven? You know, And it becomes obvious to him, in order to be forgiven, at the very least, he has to give up the kingdom and the wife that he gained by committing his murder, and he's not willing to do either of those things. So... Uh, and Julius Caesar, right? You you may have you may be familiar with that play where the friends of Caesar they murder Caesar and then they turn to fighting amongst themselves and Cassius and Brutus go into this huge war with Mark Antony about who's going to lead the the Roman Empire, and they're all acting like beasts. Every one of them is willing to commit murder and betray their finest principles in order to get power. This is what power does to people when they're listening to their beast. Um, Incidentally, it's also in modern fiction, um, you know, this, this idea of murder. Uh, as I was uh, thinking about this, the, the thought of Harry Potter came into my mind because as Harry and Dumbledore, maybe you don't know the story of Harry Potter, but the evil person in Harry Potter is Voldemort, and he has made himself invulnerable by creating these what are called horcruxes where he's put little, he's hidden little pieces of his soul, and the way he created them is by committing a murder. For each one, the act of murder is de- is described in that book as being something so powerful and so detrimental and so shocking to the nature of things that it will even take it will separate part of someone's soul. So this this idea of a beast it, it's very familiar to all of us. It's deeply embedded in all of our consciousnesses. We we know that we have a beast within us, and we know that we're also in the image of God. And therefore, we have this choice. We can react like the people who who tried to get rid of their blood guilt by denying it. Or we can act like Simon, who wanted to help Christ. He wasn't taking on his own blood guilt. He was admitting that there is some responsibility and was trying to help Christ in carrying that cross so that Christ could do his work that only he could do. Uh, I want to end by talking about a couple of poems both of which have been set to music. The first is a song that I'm sure you've heard. It's called "As I Survey the Wonders," or "When I Survey the Wonders Cross," by Isaac Watts. Uh, there, there's a wonderful rendition of this by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, but it is uh, a Protestant hymn. As Latter Day Saints, we don't celebrate the cross as much as many Protestants do. However, the there's nothing in this, in the words of this, that are not appropriate for our reflection and worship. So I'll read that to you. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them. To his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. A truly powerful uh, hymn. As Jesus was dying on the cross, 
the the veil of the temple rent from top to bottom. It tore in half, and a, a huge storm arose. Darkness covered the earth, and the Roman soldiers even said to themselves, the God of nature suffers. We know from the Book of Mormon that across the world, the, the entire face of the land was rearranging itself. This was truly an earth-shattering moment, both spiritually and literally, for the history of man. Uh, Paul perhaps understood it best, in, or explained it best in our modern scriptures. I'm going to read you a couple of uh, passages from, from Paul's epistles. One is in Romans chapter 5. This is verses 6 through 8. And I'm going to read to you from the New International Version. It's a little more clear. So it talks about the fact that uh, we are, well, it talks about how unprofitable we are as objects of God's love. And, and therefore, how much more pure God's love is. How many times did Jesus say, don't give to those people who can give back to you. Give to those who hate you or give to those who are poor so they can't repay you. That's how your love is really shown. And Paul expresses this very idea. This is Romans 5, 6 through 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Showing that, this is uh, my, this is my words now, showing that he didn't, he didn't expect anything in return. He loved us so much that he was doing it just for us. I've made mention to this next scripture before, but this is Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 12 and read through verse 15. When you were baptized, you were buried with Christ, and in baptism, you were also raised with Christ through your faith in the active power of God who raised him from death. You were at one time spiritually dead because of your sins and because you were Gentiles without the law, but God has now brought you to life with Christ. God forgave us all our sins. He canceled the unfavorable record of our debts with its binding rules and did away with it completely by nailing it to the cross. And on that cross, Christ freed himself from the power of the spiritual rulers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them by leading them captives in his victory procession. I'm sorry, that's the good news translation. So uh, a couple of phrases here stick out to me. He made a public spectacle of them. So it calls the, the Via Dolorosa, this walk that Christ made carrying his cross, it calls it his victory procession. This was when Christ, this is why, this is why Christ had to die, is because he had to show what the governments of men that are made up of when, when the beast rules, what happens. Uh, an innocent man, the only innocent person this whole day was Jesus. And the, there were other people proclaiming their innocence or do, trying to do different things to deal with their blood guilt. But Jesus said nothing. 
He was the only innocent person and said nothing at all, but bore this cross. And in so doing, was he made a public spectacle of those people who were willing to condemn him. He showed that they were all part of a conspiracy to commit murder. And because they were the ones in charge, then there was none that could deliver. It was Christ showing, this is what you get up to when left to your own devices. If you are willing to let the beast within you rule, the natural man have power. This is where you will end up. And I'm making it a public spectacle. I am willing to die to show you that, to expose it. This is such a, the, cro- the cross is such a political statement. And it is, uh, it is both appropriate and necessary for prophets to make the same kind of statement politically. Uh, the, the prophets have the duty to name the beasts that government and society, men's society, becomes. Because it's only when they're exposed that we are moved towards a choice between the image of God or the image of the beast within us. So those are some thoughts on the crucifixion. Uh, I'll, I'll end by reading the words of another poem. And then uh, this one has recently been set to music. Uh, this is a poem by Christina Rossetti. And it was set to music this year by Kendra Lowe. It's a poem about the feeling that... So that here's someone who is torn between the idea of, am I going to try to do with my blood guilt what those what, what all these guilty parties did or am i going to try to weep at the feet of christ before him on the cross am i i, I don't feel like i can cry for christ the way i wish i could but i hope that he will release the flood of my tears so here's the poem it's called good friday and incidentally that's the piece with which we'll be concluding our podcast today in just a minute or two Am I a stone and not a sheep, that I can stand, O Christ, beneath thy cross, to number drop by drop thy blood's slow loss, and yet not weep? Not so those women loved who with exceeding grief lamented thee. Not so fallen Peter, weeping bitterly. Not so the thief was moved. Not so the sun and moon who, which hid their faces in a starless sky. A horror of great darkness at broad noon. I, only I, yet give not o'er, but seek thy sheep, true shepherd of the flock. Greater than Moses, turn and look once more, and smite a rock. Meaning, of course, the way that Moses struck the rock and water poured forth. This poem is is a masterwork if you study it. Uh, it is, in my opinion, very much in the style of Hebrew poetry, because it is almost chiasmic. It, it repeats its themes and ends where it began, that God is going to be the shepherd that is going to bring forth these true feelings of weeping and remorse and willingness to bear his cross with him as we stand before the suffering and behold the sufferings and death of Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Mm-hmm.